We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage, and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips. We have trainings, exercise. We do research. And in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts. And also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Hello and welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. This is episode 46 with myself, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. Today we're going to be speaking with Stephanie Haro. We're going to talk a lot about the Venus figurines of Europe, these uh, mysterious objects that date to some of the uh, oldest artistic uh, art forms between 25 and 45,000 years ago. Hello out there in archaeological podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, and we're blessed and pleased to have Stephanie Haro. Hi. You've got a bachelor's degree from UCSB, and one of the things you've studied along with your interest in anthropology and archaeology, of course, is the classics. And I don't think we've had anybody on this show yet to talk about classical archaeology, European archaeology, and the archaeology in that part of the globe. And one of the more fascinating data sets is is sort of the the beginnings of artistic three-dimensional they also call them plastic objects statuettes if you will they're called the venus figurines and they occurred throughout europe from about 45,000 to 20,000 years ago and with that here is stephanie hi <laughs> hi it's good to talk to you <laughs> it's a pleasure to talk to you i'm honored and blessed to have you on on our show and I think we'll have a chance to, in the next uh, hour, do a few things. Well, you know, the, give me a little snapshot bio of how you ever got involved with anthropology, archaeology, the study of art, and in turn, 
just your uh, interest. Where did it come from and how did it develop? Well, I did start in um, Native Indigenous archaeology in California, but I did transition over to the classics. I really love the Roman culture, but more specifically, I love Roman religion and sort of how that transforms. And that led me to the Venus figurines because they are always classified as religious, which, you know, we can't argue whether they, well, we can, but, you know, it's not a for sure thing. And I just think that's so fascinating being able to do that. So I've kind of just made my focus classics. And it's been really interesting being able to see the connections between what you find in Europe and what is discovered not only in America, but in South America and even parts of Africa and other cultures, how it all kind of interconnects. And where have your travels uh, taken you and what sort of academic trajectory have you had? So I have done a couple of sites, native sites in California and Cathy's Valley that did deal with osteology. I also did two sites in Italy, Polana Trochia. I did pottery analysis and in another area kind of near Naples called Mirabera Aclano off of the Via Appia. I did some studies there on pottery and osteology. So what has... Uh Give it, what has tugged at your soul vis-a-vis these uh, classical cultures and the it's, – it's unusual to have someone, I guess, from the States who has uh, such a passion for this uh, particular region and uh, culture. What, what is it that, that draws you to this study? I think it's really the iconography of it. The Roman iconography, of course, it's highly related to Greek. And then you kind of see a sort of transformation from other cultures incorporated into it. And my main focus is sort of a religious studies, specifically lorariums found in Pompeii. That's what I originally started with. And for those of you that are as naive as I am, what the heck's a lorarium? <laughs> oh, yes. Uh, lorariums are household shrines. They are very, usually pretty small, but highly decorated. Uh-huh. What do they date to? Where are they? Uh, well, it, that's very odd because not a lot of research has been done on lorariums. Uh-huh. It's rather new. So even I'm still have peers that are looking into that. But in Pompeii, they do date to, of course, 79 AD, the explosion or eruption of Mount Vesuvius. But they have been shown to have been there for a good two, three hundred years before that. Even before they were a Roman lorarium, they were actually sometimes Etruscan, Hmm. which was the original culture that was in Pompeii. And they sort of took it over and incorporated it into theirs. So describe a lorarium and what would we see if we're looking at such an edifice? So a lorarium is usually an inset niche into a wall, usually in an atrium. So it's sort of a public area, but it's a way into the household. So it's only for the household. Usually little statuettes, little bronze or clay. Sometimes it would be different materials like stone would be placed in there that are of the gods that were the household gods that they worshipped. And on those lorariums, you'll also find very intricate designs 
of the Lares, the gods, and the pater familias, which is the head of the household. Hmm. But not only do they take place in households, these lorariums are found in public places, placed there by the wealthier people for the worship of, I guess, the everyday citizen of Pompeii. So not only were they able to do that in households, they were also placed on certain corners for neighborhood shrines. So are these any form of ancestor worship or are they sort of super mundane beings unto themselves because she called it a paterfamilias? Paterfamilias specifically refers to the male, usually male, head of the household. So there was actually a separate sort of uh, ceremony or I would say symbolism that they used for ancestors, usually within a certain room. I believe it was the atrium. They would have masks of the deceased displayed on the walls above as sort of that uh, ancestry recognition. But the lorariums were specifically to house a symbology of the genus, which is the head of the house, the paterfamilias. It would be an exact sort of image of the head of the household displayed on the lorarium. Give us some more data on this lorarium and what it consists of and then what uh, the hypothetical function is. And are there written documents that relate perhaps to this particular feature? So the lorarium, the one I specifically analyzed and wrote a report on, was the lorarium of the house of the Veti. It was actually a household with two male heads of the household. And it was sort of interesting that they had the same kind of lorarium type as everyone else. So what you would find in this niche, this specific niche was crafted to look like a temple surrounding it. So they actually had some marble and the marble was sort of, I guess, etched and changed to look like a temple. So you would have the upper frieze and then you'd have the two pillars on the side. And then within this, you have a beautiful fresco of what is called the genus is at the center. And he mm-hmm. is the pater familias. So he was the head of the household. He's the guy making offerings to the gods for the household. And when the as the pater familias, someone who's alive? Yes, it is the father. It is maybe wow. if it's a grandfather, if it's whoever really? is considered the head of the household is the person being depicted. Huh. But they're usually pretty similar, so you can't really tell differences. So how does that segue at all if in terms of your trajectory of study in anthropology, archaeology, and art, religion, to uh, one of the things we were, th- were planning on talking about was the Venus <laughs> figuring. Obviously, I'm very interested in the establishment of a religion. I like seeing how it kind of goes cross-culturally. And what we have very little of is of prehistoric religion, obviously, for very obvious reasons that we don't have any sort of written record or history that we have writing systems from that era, you know, so it's kind of hard to decide what was religious and what may have just been a cultural thing. Right. So I I found that very interesting. So that drew your attention to this collection of figurines. How many are there in the world? 
I believe found um, there's been varying numbers, which is really odd because I found some reports that say 80. There's reports that number them at 200. Yeah. I've looked through several images of what they consider Venus figurines. And some of them even to me don't look like they fit the iconography of what would be a Venus figurine. So it's very kind of sporadic. So it's just, there's a considerable range, but there's a rather small number worldwide, obviously. Yes, very small. And and what is the characteristics of a, a Venus figurine? So the Venus figurines, you'll usually find them displaying very specific characteristics of a, they believe, some people believe that it was a pregnant female so you would have they have large breasts they have an emphasized or protruding stomach area and a lot of the time you'll see an emphasized pubic area as well Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of the other features on it are really downplayed you'll the arms and legs are tapered so you don't really get you, you you clearly see what the emphasis on these figurines are and how big are they well the the ones that i've studied have been about four inches, a little over four inches tall, but they go all the way down to about 1.2 inches. So they, they are really small. So they're, they're, they're very small. Very. I would lose it if, it, if I had to carry it. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> I would, I'd have to make one every other week. <laughs> right, right. Have they replicated them and found out how long, how much time and effort it takes to manufacture one of these? No, like as as far as I know, there's very very little studies that have been done on these. Hmm. Yes. And and they are some of the earliest art, aren't they? Not. Yes, and the earliest that we can find because they're the only things made out of material that is sustainable over you yeah. know the time period that they come from. Right. They're right. very old. So. Here we are in terms of the beginnings of art with these rather magical figures that are interesting and people would agree that they're rather gender specific, aren't they? Oh, yes. There's no questioning that it's a female form. I think this is a good place to stop and we'll flip and flop and come back momentarily to probe deeper into the Venus figurine mystery. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high-quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high-quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to zencastr.com and use the code rockart. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. 
Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back, all you podcasters in archaeology podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel, with Stephanie Hotto. And we're going to be talking about and continuing a conversation about a remarkable assemblage of Venus figurines that Stephanie has uh, spent considerable amount of time analyzing, thinking about, reflecting upon, and and considering. And she's going to, I guess, riff a bit about what her motivation is and how did she get access to this information and what specifically she might have discovered. Thank you. <laughs> now, now, where are you? Where are you located right now? Where, you're you're in some place else besides where I am, right? Yes, I'm in Merced, California, and, currently. And Merced is Merced is in the Central Valley, isn't it? Yes, very hot, yes. very hot place. Very hot. And I'm just to the south of you in Bakersfield, which is equally hot. <laughs> um, I don't know about equally. That's probably. <laughs> probably I would say hotter. yours is pretty hot. But we but we have a hot but we have a hot topic to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So I'll 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 turn my attention back to the yes. Venus figurines. I've always been fascinated by them for a variety of reasons and read, you know, some simple things about them, but certainly not to the depth that uh, your knowledge has taken you. And it seems as though there's a lot of different opinions about them and the theoretical models have changed over time and people have come up with very different ways of thinking or looking about them, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. And and like you said, I hardly had heard anything about these figurines. I mean, we all heard of the Venus of Willendorf, so I assumed it was very well studied. But when I actually began to dig, there's very, very limited information. It's just a bunch of people basically taking a stab at what they think might be going on with these figurines. So give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what the various perspectives on the, fun- the function and the meaning of these figurines might be. Starting with the function, just based on their small size and the Venus of Holfels, which is actually dating to about 45 to, I believe, 35,000 years ago. It looks kind of like a rotisserie chicken. This figurine is one of the only ones that does not have a head, but in place of the head, there's a hole to kind of wear as an amulet. And the pure size of them, you know, at this time in history, people were very nomadic. So preferably you would carry things with you that were relatively small and, you know, you'd be able to handle and carry as you're hunting or gathering or going about your daily activities. So you have these very small, small items. I think you were telling me at one point that uh, they may have some wear patterns on them. There may be some sort of other things uh, smeared over them. Oh, yes. There's, there's not much wear. So they were well taken care of, uh, you know, so very important to whoever may have had them. But what we mm-hmm. see on some of them is um, a red ochre, co- like a coating, or it's like if they were painted with it. Uh-huh. And those, from what I've seen, have been found in burials that also contain the skeletal remains had been also coated in red ochre. But these have been found in various, various, very wide-ranging places. So tell us what that red ochre and their association with burials might signify. Well, it's believed by some to be 
a, a very spiritual color, of course, you know, red, the color of blood, the color of life, you know, is signified by red. Ochre was a very big pigment that was used during that time and uh, throughout history. I mean, you see, you know, rock paintings, cave art, stone paintings, any like numerous other designs, you'll see, you know, the use of red ochre. It's just a very special and very available pigment to them. Is there any uh, notations or other sort of engravings or anything associated with this that would lead us for, to get some sort of a, understanding of perhaps numerology or astronomy or uh, maybe even gestation, anything like that? Or is that going down the wrong route? Well, there's really not. Like, there's very little, I'd say, in situ as an archaeologist, but there's really little evidence that we have found these in, in the areas that they were found that gives us anything pertaining to astrology or anything else. Many of them were found in caves, which many, you know, spiritual places are associated with springs and with caves, but we don't know whether they were placed there just because it was a spiritually associated place or if that was just a cache that they happened to leave. So we really have no way of knowing. Are there any concentrations of these objects? Are they distributed homogeneously across the landscape? Are there particular places geographically that tend to exhibit them more? Are they restricted to just Europe itself and nowhere else in the world? Well, the ones that I have studied are specifically within Europe. I found some in Italy. There's Germany, Austria, various other places that I've seen. I think some have been in France, um, all over Europe. But of course, the iconography of it is found in Africa and many other places. So it's very, it's very broad in that sense. Do you ever see images depicted on other sort of canvases that would mirror these patterns? Have they have they painted anything like this? Have we seen them in plaques or in any other way that would be less sort of three-dimensional? I remember I saw saw this, you know, this Venus with the the horn or the the, the moon that sort of looks maybe akin to this in some ways. Is that related or is that something totally what era did you see that from just very early uh, same same kind of age yeah but i don't i don't know if it's a it isn't a venus figurine per se it's more of a sculptural you know flat tabular kind of a thing not that i know of i mean i i have personally have not seen that one i don't see okay. why there couldn't be a connection if it if it displays the same large breasts protruding stomach and you know pubic yeah. area we could yeah. draw an association definitely what do the feminists think about this these class of things oh what, man what, what well, is their take i feel like that was a very because it was sort of in retaliation or I would, I guess you could use retaliation against the mid 19th century, you know, analysis that was made because obviously we know the mid 19th century was dominated by, you know, white male archaeologists. It's not a put down. That's just how it was. And, you know, they made their inference, you know, their inference was that it was, you know, made by men for men. Some, believe that it was a you know pornographic representation for them to have that maybe it was supposed to bring you know male virility 
Okay. A sort of lucky charm. Um, but yeah. as we get into the 90s, there was obviously, you know, a lot of more feminine voices being heard. Anthropology, archaeology, you know, kind of coming arise. There's specific, I think it's McCoyd and McDermott. Uh-huh. They actually wrote a really great paper. They theorized that there was a, they were actually self-portraits done by expectant hmm. mothers. Oh, wow. Um, because as you look at these figurines, if you're, imagine you're a pregnant female and you're looking down at your body, of course, you're going to right. see enlarged breasts, your large stomach, and you're, you know, you wouldn't be able to see your pubic area, but you know what it's like. Um, and that's yes. highly associated with pregnancy. And the arms and legs are tapered because that's your visual as you look down. Again, they don't know if it was just a religious thing or if it was sort of a lucky charm or just to bring health to a pregnancy or fertility. It's something right. they kind of theorize about. But it is rather remarkable in terms of the taking that particular perspective. It's almost like doing a piece of landscape archaeology, <laughs> isn't it? Isn't oh, it? Absolutely, yeah. Sort of, yeah. Sort of thinking about the perspective and the orientation and sort of the how one cognitively processes such an object. Yes, and uh, definitely perspective, the whole perspective yeah. shift. Yeah, I like that. I like it a lot. I have referenced a paper in one of my one of my pieces of research that is interesting and sort of analogous in some ways. They were trying to figure out the function and meaning of some of these statuettes, and I think there was even a Venus figurine in there. Mm. And what they what they did was talk about creativity. They found some professional not artists, but people who are actors and actresses, and had them form the same postures that are depicted in these particular figurines or statuettes. And they asked them to close their eyes and feel and sense the, what they would cognitively and emotionally sense from taking those particular postures and gestures. Oh, wow. Amazing, huh? Yeah. 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 So that that is not far from the mark in terms of this other study that you were so interested in that similarly tries to, I think, probe the mind and the the neurology, the neurophysiology of these kinds of objects. I think that would that that sort of has come together as one of sort of the cutting edge ways that some of the cognitive archaeology is going to sort of look at the neuropsychology, neurophysiology, and even they call it neurotheology. The uh, mm. how does the religious thought, or you know, the supra mundane or aesthetics that we have relate back to what we're feeling and seeing? How do they sort of because my maybe I'm in the wrong headspace for this, but my, not issue, but I guess I would have some sort of thought that it would be hard to reestablish that because it would be out of context, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, of we course. don't have the same mindsets as people no. living back at that time. Exactly. So it would and, be very hard, a, I think. Certainly would criticize it. But we do have a similar mind in some ways, and our mind and our 
our eyes and our way we process the world is similar. And, and our phenotypically we're, you know, we're human. And so we have feelings and some of the rock art studies of the day now are starting to, to sort of begin to believe or communicate that one of the things that happens when one sees an image, it elicits an emotion. It emotes. It's almost as though you can grab an image from hundreds, thousands of years ago, and when one sees it, your eyes are riveted on certain aspects of that image, and it it triggers a neurophysiological action that affects something in your psyche and tells you something. It could say fright. It could say it could say run. It could say love. It could have pleasure. It could have some sort of connection with a transcendent experience, meaning, you know, taking you out of your body and looking at some sort of divine connection. Does any of that make any sense? No, yeah, I definitely could see that. I guess it's just, I mean, there's things nowadays, like if I showed something to a child, they would think was scary, but to me, wouldn't be. So if some culture had displayed exactly some sort of, you know, rock art or some sort of thing that was not scary to them, some horned beast or you know, whatever sure. it might be, big horn sheep, maybe somebody else looking at that might go, wow, they're, you know, what are they high on? Or, you know, someone that doesn't understand no, exactly. might look at it differently. And a, and a critical element is, is that all of this, when we pull it out of context and we don't understand the cultural, social, religious context of an object, it becomes rather impossible to really understand what was in the mind of the artisan. So I guess we're still then groping or grappling with its cultural, you know, situation and how to best even begin to assess it with the mind of someone tens of thousands years ago. And I think with that, we're going to have to cut this one off and then move to the final section of our hour long interplay, the journey into the Venus figurine mystery. See you on the flip-flop, gang. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Well, we're back for the final segment with our guest scholar, Stephanie Haro. We're, we're just digging down, trying to sort of get our mind around what it would be like to have 
be 25,000 or 40,000 years ago and being a hunter-gatherer or forager and dealing with their uh, conceptualization of the universe, their landscape, their religion, their life ways, and what the heck these figurines, these portable, small, in some cases beautiful, voluptuous female figurines could mean, and how do we figure that out? Stephanie, it's your game. Well, that's a big question to answer. Of course. (laughs) That's why you're here. here. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Some questions lead to other better questions. So what are the better questions that we have about these figurines after probing more deeply? I mean, better questions. I mean, that's hard to answer because I, I feel like there's a lot of good good questions that we can ask. Good. But I mean, obviously dealing with prehistory and being, for me, uh, I guess I'm more of a historical archaeologist. Right. Dealing with Roman, you know, culture. So dealing with another arena of, you know, prehistory where I don't get the same context that I do with historical really kind of threw me through a loop because, you know, how can you possibly answer this without making the wrong conceptualization of what might be going on? Sure. And I think the best sort of answer I got, if it's an answer at all, was by, I believe it was Stephen Mithin. Mm -hmm. And he talked about that, he suggested that ritual or spiritual or maybe even just, you know, beliefs that are ingrained in the human mind by giving them familiar characteristics. So just dealing with the Venus figurines, obviously the familiar characteristic for people that lived in the prehistoric era was the female body, was, was pregnancy and the sort of like rebirth and giving of life. Um, and I think that we can clearly display, you know, suggest that there was obviously a belief that lasted, you know, tens of thousands of years by different generations of people. I mean, it's so crazy to think that all these, you know, separate generations had these similar iconography that they carried around with them. There was some sort of a linkage, some sort of a cultural tether, some sort of a tug on them relating to this symbolic edifice. There's a, there's yes. a, there's some, there's something there that tugs at one's soul, one's heart, one's psyche, one's psyche, psyche. And it obviously continued to do that and be a central hallmark object so much so that it continues for thousands of years, not unchanged, but of a similar pattern, Correct. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you if you just look through the Venus figurines, you see a clear, there's very little change. Obviously, you get some polishing because, like I said, the, the Venus of Holfels look like a little rotisserie chicken that's kind of beat right. up. And then you get into these very beautifully polished uh, ones made out of soapstone and right. different types of stone. So it's very interesting to see how it's just kind of grown. But the, I think all of us would agree that it had to do with something of the, f- of the feminine line and something about perhaps fertility or vitality and life renewal. It had to be part of the, the story, no? Oh, that's definitely, definitely a good 
you know, theory on it. I mean, it's perfectly safe to assume that. I know that there was another theory that it was a uh, symbol to just depict health or the possibility of attaining prosperity. So there, there are people that believe that they weren't even necessarily female pregnancy, that it may have just been, you know, a depiction of uh, having health because obviously a female form or a form that is larger, you know, could signify, you know, having enough food, having the supplies to last, you know, through life. And that, you know, that has also been suggested, but, you know, the use of the female form definitely sways it towards, you know, being something that has to do with, you know, rebirth and, you know, life, pregnancy and life. Yes. And I know that I've kind of riffed on that in some of my own work where I've looked cross-culturally at foragers, at hunter-gatherers, and found that one characteristic that seems to be synonymous with that, you know, systematic sociocultural level is what's called increased rights or renewals or to- both social totems and increased totems. And they, they would create uh, objects that meant something to them and that these would in turn be revered or cherished or sacrificed or just a part and parcel of a ceremony or ritual that was intended to instill fecundity, fertility to an animal or to the group as a whole in terms of its ability to grow and reproduce and be vital or have uh, the necessary environmental correlates of rain and sun in the right proportions so that they could have plants and animals and that they would be healthy enough to sustain their population and continue to exist. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So that's, that's something that has always been of, you know, of interest to me. I know we're going a little far afield, but in my own research in the Coso rock art, one of the things I, I tended to see was, you know, we talk about hunting magic, but rather than hunting magic, it doesn't seem to me to be necessarily about death, but I'm more about life, mm-hmm. vitality, numbers, uh, reproduction, joy, and uh, how would you put it? And energetic. You don't yeah. see the animals depicted as they yeah, are no, dead. Definitely. I'm, I mean, if putting yourself in the place of somebody in that time period would you want to surround yourself with you know death and you know things that may not signify you know longevity or health or you know hope I guess I mean it's understandable that they would you know prefer to visualize that and they talk about sympathetic or homeopathic uh, magic and so you visualize, we've talked, you and I have talked about this in the religious side, you almost visualize or magnify the thing that you say or see. So as one speaks it or sees it or senses it or makes a picture or a sculpture of it, you are manifesting that phenomenon, almost psychically, supernaturally, visually. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Sort of the name it and claim it. <laughs> yeah, the name it and claim it thing. 
in a sense. But it, but but no, but it but it it, it goes a lot further than that, and, and is deeply embedded in sort of the consciousness of humankind, isn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I mean, tell me about it. I mean, prayers. Yeah, what's that all? What is prayer about? Why would someone pray? <laughs> People pray to bring, you know, hope and joy and alleviate struggle and hardship. I mean, usually that's, you know, what I associate with prayer. It could just be praise towards God, but you know, let's be honest, when a lot of people pray, it's probably, you know, for help or for prosperity or to ask for something. And as we've said before, there's there's no atheists in the foxholes. <laughs> right. So when you're facing death, you tend to sort of all of a sudden want to pray. Yep, absolutely. And what's very fascinating about the gestures and the particular el- elements of rock art and statuary that we're talking about, sometimes they seem to have an enveloping way, a, a way of sort of almost capturing or mothering someone with their arms or their arms are arrayed Mm. suspended upwards towards the sky they call it the adherent posture Mm. and when people have studied that or you know considered that in great depth this goes on cross-culturally throughout history that this these postures or gestures seem to be coming through again and again and again in a variety of ways, but also in a lot of patterns that seem to me to be replicated worldwide. And there seems to be something about when you place your hands in a, either a um, enveloped way to try to hug someone or greet someone, or if you place your hands upwards towards the heavens, we're communicating, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. And like you said, to see it in so many cultures, I mean, I believe I've seen a lot of iconography from the Aztec culture representing many of those with the appraised arms and kneeling or some sort of adoration pose. And in Africa, I mean, just like we see with the, you know, Venus figurines, there's some sort of belief associated with certain positions or with the Venus figures. Again, you see certain characteristic gestures or certain characteristic embodiments in terms of the poses, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Yes. It's, it's, if you look at them, they're, they're very close. Like you would think they came from the same time period. It's it's very interesting to see. No, they absolutely don't. So perhaps one of the key characteristics of these objects is the gestural the gestural the sort of the that aesthetic that seems to be across numerous cultures and tremendous time spans yet is a characteristic pattern of this cognitive package am i correct mhm yes absolutely yeah. yeah and what would th- what would that imply what does that imply when you see something like that recurring again and again and again, what is the, what is the message or what would be the signal or something that we get that would make sense to us in uh, 2021 instead of 45,000 years ago? (laughs) Well, that's, 
Hmm. I mean, it's a tough one. It's yeah. It's a, I think it's just the belief that we're all human and we all have yes. the same yes. basic yes. beliefs yes. and basic needs and wants in life that yes. lead all of these cultures to have such similar, you know, iconography and, you know, beliefs and it, it connects us all, I think, um, and shows us that we're all not that different. Right. It's taken me a lifetime to come to that same conclusion. When I walk down Little Petroglyph Canyon, the one thing that comes to my mind when looking at the Coso, it says, these people are the same as me. <laughs> they want to eat. They want to have fun. They want to they have families. They want to have joy and dances and things like that. And yeah, they had, they had, they had a little rough, but they were probably pretty much the same as me. And, you know, they, they wanted to sustain their culture and, and uh, follow the ways of some sort of a, a, a central figure or hierarchy of supernaturals that might help them to weather the storms. Right. Oh, exactly. That's exactly the way I see it. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting to come full circle with all this because it ha- I think there's certain themes that cross cut the uh, artistic realm and a message that images and statuettes are giving us about humankind. How's that? Yeah. Yeah. That's there. There's a connection. Yeah. No matter where you're from, no matter the culture, no matter topographically speaking that there's yeah. that same belief. That's the takeaway, isn't it? Yeah. That's Definitely. Uh, the circle of life. <laughs> it's interesting to think of like I, I, I had thought it about is. it, it's but wonderful. this really kind of like blew it up. <laughs> yeah. No, it's great. Yeah. We're we're about ready to close out the episode. Anything you'd wanna put the uh bow on it and say to the audience about uh your work and where you're headed, where you've been, where you are and where you're going? Well, where I'm going, I mean, uh, I love the analysis of Venus figurines and seeing that connection. I'd really like to bring that into contrast with Roman religion and, you know, Roman conquest. Of course, you go through areas that had different beliefs and different ideas. And I would really like to see how those ideas are incorporated and those beliefs are incorporated into Roman religion and see how they go across time as well. Well, Stephanie, it's been a tremendous pleasure. This has been a, a rather interesting and unique interaction. So God bless you and, and thank you all my listeners for putting up with this uh, interesting journey, focusing on these mysterious figures of the Venus figurines of Europe from many tens of thousands of years ago. See you on the flip-flop, gang. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends.
This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.